so thinking about earth temples last night I began to think about the word temple itself because like all these old esoteric terms they're very widely misunderstood well they've they've been neglected haven't they I mean most of the words have just been neglected and people have a kind of rigid idea about what a word might mean and I, I simply I started by looking it up in the dictionary I discovered to my amazement that the word temple and the word tempus in Latin are actually connected now what could be the different what could be the connection between notions of time and notions of the establishment of places which are regarded as special or as holy or or whatever and um, they just gave a hint even in the dictionary of how that might have been how mu that might have happened and in these days when most people have some sort of ideas about Einstein's unified field I mean that okay there is actually no real difference between space and time or between space and light or between light and time these are all experiences that we have which it's no skin off the nose of reality itself that we have these three different experiences because they are actually um, coming from the same source in a fairly immediate way and it's only the way we happen to be organized to perceive and to think that makes us experience them as different I mean, okay, Einstein was a genius, but he was not a genius in the sense of really of going forward into something completely new, because in primeval times that was known to be so. When he talked about a unified field and said that space and time were part of a syndrome and that light really gave birth to that, he was talking about something that was known in the ancient mysteries to be so and we can think quite clearly there there is no linear time at all linear time is a complete artifact of our own consciousness entirely due to our organism time itself is not sequential it only appears to lie in a line because of our notions about space okay tick 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 goes the clock inch two inches three inches goes the, the ruler you know and uh, it's our experience of space that gives us our notion that time is linear actually it isn't linear at all it's emergent it's all there the past is here now the future is here now and so on we have access to the past and to the future as well as to the present and our access to the past is not confined just to remembering it if you get to a certain stage of development you can change it now that's a notion that is really quite staggering to to, to the notions of the present day even among scientists except the most advanced because it's possible to alter the past otherwise what would the word redemption mean you couldn't have redemption you couldn't have forgiveness if it weren't possible to alter the past the alteration may not be uh, the straightforward sort of alteration a mechanical alteration like altering the position of something in space it may not be quite as simple as that but it's still an, it's a conceivable notion mathematically and consciously that the past is accessible to us by more than just mere recollection well thinking about that you see tempus was somehow clairvoyantly perceived by the ancient Greeks and Romans as something extracted from eternity 
set aside as a bit by the exercise of particular features of our own consciousness we, we, we created time as we create all our realities in fact out of our needs, out of our consciousness, out of what we've accumulated as karma in past lives we, we create the realities around us and time is one of them and space is another so looking at temples from that point of view the, the, the same notion was there in their minds when they talked about a temple what's a temple then? a temple is a selected venue within space within three dimensional space to which we pay particular attention when we are in a mood of call it eternity when we are conscious a little bit raised above ourselves into a realm where where the unified field means something to us as an experience going back to Einstein Einstein could think the unified field and he could express it mathematically and as a result of that having happened as a kind of threshold in human development we can start actually to experience that subjectively it's all very well to say that there is a unified field but meanwhile at the level of our ordinary consciousness we go on experiencing spaces here, out here and time as there and there as it were but the fact that it has been thought actually um, that, that yeah, Einstein's consciousness could penetrate into the mathematics of it to the point of actually thinking the, the thought perhaps for the first time in the civilization that space-time existed as a unity we can now as a result of that threshold that he crossed we can start actually to experience this as being true we can raise our consciousness to the point where we uh, experience uh, ourselves as being not separate from the total consciousness of mankind we are a, another way to put it would be we're a hologram of the total consciousness of mankind you know what hologram is you know how um, uh, the, 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 the uh, fact discovered about holograms really is that any image of any object can be present at any point in space and lasers have been used in order to bring that about as an accomplished fact in certain within certain parameters they can do that you can produce a three-dimensional image of something anywhere well translate that into the terms of our own consciousness our consciousness I remain Stanley you remain Allison but in fact we are both um, projections hologram projections of the total consciousness of mankind at a particular point with particular parameters with a particular uh, uh, we meet any of us meet in, in space and in our lives in destiny but um, and those things have uh, are truths on a higher level still but on the level of ordinary experience we are both there um, in the same venue within the same parameters as projections of the same ultimate human consciousness and reality 
And in that sense, you see, each of us is picked out of eternity as a temple. And that's a very old notion, that the human form is itself a temple, in that sense. It's something uh, created with our complicity by the gods as a particular hologram of the entire being man. Pity we've still got that word and it doesn't include woman in the word and it, there's nothing we can do about it these days. The language is too much formed. But you know what I mean, the human. Actually, to go off on a bit of a sidetrack, um, humanness is not confined to us. We are experiencing humanness on the earth that other cosmic beings have experienced humanness elsewhere. Humanness is a stage of development through from, from a more or less unconscious thing which here in, uh, in our civilization, in our earth existence, manifests itself as the mineral. There's a next level which manifests itself as plant and another level then manifests as animal and we manifest as human but it's only temporary that we are human next time the earth incarnates we'll be a step up and there are beings which we usually call angels or I can't remember what the Easterns call them the arms something or other um, different civilizations had different names for them who were human last time the earth incarnated because the in earth reincarnates just as we do we reincarnate as human beings all through the Earth's existence, so do the planets. It's a much longer time span, time cycle, rhythm cycle. But in the last incarnation of the Earth, which occultists usually refer to as the Moon, what we now call angels were human. Human is a condition, it isn't a, simply a description of us. It's a condition, condition that you can describe in a certain way. And you go on from it to the condition that we usually describe as, as angel, which has another kind of function. It's a more connective function than ours. The, the angels now that we're aware of, because we are aware of them at certain levels of consciousness, are link beings to higher hierarchies still. And that's a function we shall perform when the Earth incarnates again, which it will do. The next incarnation of the Earth is, as already called by occultists, Jupiter. It's sometimes known in old writings as Jerusalem the Golden, which people think is some kind of thing connected with Christianity. Well, it's the name that the Jewish civilization gave to it. Came. The Golden City is another thing that it's sometimes called. Um, but it in, uh, and it, it always gives you a feeling of gold. It, it, if you mention it, it's got this sort of glow about it which is connected with the color gold. Um, and the planet Jupiter we now have circling around us is a kind of uh, uh, forerunner of it, a kind of seed out of which it will grow. And the moon that we see circling around is an ash, which is the remains of the last time the Earth incarnated. It's a, it feels like an ash. It's, it's, the out, it's the last remains, the dead remains of, a, of something which was an incarnation of this planet at a previous time. Now all these things, of course, are 
extracts or holograms of the infinite and therefore you could say that they are all temples and I wanted to talk about that sort of thing as a background because to try and give a feeling for the word temple which was wider than what people usually what usually comes up in people's minds when they say the word temple that's what a temple is my body is one your body is one your whole life is one isn't it a more expanded view of the thing your incarnation is itself a temple it's a venue within which certain things can happen certain kinds of development certain experiences a step on a path of, of your eternal history so for, from that, that sort of cosmic width of, of concepts one can bring that down then into this notion of earth temples earth temples in a more limited sense which, it, which is uh, becoming very common as a concept and an experience among many new age groups do you know why human beings have chakras? Now, do I have to explain to you what chakras are? Do you know about chakras? <coughs> well, roughly speaking, the, the, the human ether body, the next stage above the physical one, is sevenfold structured. And each of the levels of its energies is quite distinct and is laid out along the line of the body, the vertical line of the body. And each one of these energy points is connected with different cosmic energies. Broadly speaking, you could say that the top ones are connected with the sun and the bottom ones with the earth. In other words, we ourselves in our vertical form are like conductors between the sun and the earth. And the, f the top one of these so-called chakra points, some people call them lotus flowers, is not even very fully in the body at all. It's like a kind of sphere of energy above and around the tops of our heads. And it's usually called the crown chakra, or I can't remember what the lotus point name is, but, but crown chakra does quite well. And each of them is, is connected, clairvoyants see a particular rainbow color in connection with each of them, Although, I must confess, that clairvoyants seem to disagree about, about them, but I think it's partly the, the point of view from which they're looking. I think just looking straight at a human being, if you're clairvoyant and can see the ether body, you see that you pretty well agree over what colours dominate the, each, each chakra level. Now, this is the crown one, and it's very much connected with the colour violet. The way in which the colours behave is very much as they behave in a rainbow. The violet disappears into nothing beyond visibility in the rainbow. Well, it does in the c case of the crown chakra too, because the energies are too high to affect even the clairvoyance capacity to, to see them, unless they're very much more evolved. But the ordinary sort of beginning nursery class clairvoyant <laughs> sees just violet up there. Some say they see white, but those are the ones who I think are seeing an energy which is more universal than the individual. Probably one could say that if they see white around a crown chakra, they're seeing the Christ energy. They're not seeing that of the individual human being so much. Then you come down and you come to a point here between the eyes where Indians and others put these little red marks, which is a, a faint memory of times when they, the, the uh, Ajna Centre could actually be seen. 
That's usually called, uh, well, most people seem to use the word Ajna, which is the Indian or Hindu, I think, name for it. I can't remember whether it's Hindu or whether it's some more ancient Indian thing that uh, gives that name. I think it's Sanskrit, probably, yes. Anyway, this this center here is, is the first one where you're likely, as you're developing, to be more conscious of it. It's not very likely that for a long time one would really become aware of these energies. They're too, too high. But this one, people become aware of because it's the one through which we do actually begin to perceive intuitively. If you're, if you, for instance, as an example, supposing you're a nurse and, um, or a doctor, that a nurse does nicely, and uh, quite intuitively you begin to develop a capacity for knowing perfectly well what's wrong with a patient, even without having consulted the books or anything, you, you get like that. I know what's wrong with her. It's through there that you're actually perceiving that. It's a kind of direct intuitive perceiving organ which goes a little higher than analytic thinking. Now the color associated with that is the color that you can't really see in the rainbow, indigo. It's not sapphire blue and it's not violet. It's between the two. And for most people, if they experience indigo at all, they experience it a very dark blue. Almost like um, those old, old bottles of Stevens blue black ink you know if you look through it it's much darker than a sapphire and it's not violet and it looks as if it isn't quite complete and it isn't complete because most of us can't really yet see indigo color perception evolves historically as well as in individuals in Greek and Roman times they couldn't see blue and green blue and green perception only developed very recently which is why the Welsh word for blue and green and transparent is glass which is the same word for all three because they didn't distinguish between them that's why Glastonbury is called Glastonbury it's the Isle of Transparency if you like the Isle through which it's not the green Isle or the blue Isle it's the glass Isle before we could distinguish between those three well indigo is evolving now in the same way as blue and green evolved in early Greek times why do you suppose the Greeks called it the wine dark sea because they couldn't see blue and green. They saw it as a sort of purpley colour. So that's the Ajna centre. Then you come down to the throat. A completely different energy. Here you perceive, here you actually create the results of perception or, the, or create perceptions which you can then perceive here. And the colours of Ajnasen, of uh, throat chakras, uh, the throat chakra, are very different in different people. An enormous amount depends on how vocal you are, and that means how clear audience you are too. How much you depend in your perceptions on sound rather than vision. If you're more connected with your astral body than your ether body, for instance, you're more inclined to to interpret things or to um, express things more in musical or poetical terms than you are, say, in painting or, or plastic arts. <coughs> and if you do a lot of speaking, as I do, it expands quite considerably. And I've more than once had the experience, and I'm sure George Vellian would have the same, where clairvoyants have come up to me and said, did you realize you'd got a, 
an enormous uh, sort of balloon round your throat, which was turquoise. And I said, no, I didn't, because I, I'm not clairvoyant in that kind of way, and I can't see these things except at special moments. They said, so you have. It's, it's, so it's like this sort, of, this sort of balloon. And it's turquoise, not sky blue, but turquoise. It's down towards the green end of the blue, rather than, um, rather than the more purple end of the blue. And um, that happened to me once that, that I was in a shop selling candles and um, a woman came in, she sort of did that and sort of then turned away and then she came up to me and said, she talked about this turquoise colour. Then she went away. Then she came back very shy and said, uh, did you know you've got a big blue butterfly in it? And I burst into tears because I thought, oh God. My actual work with butterflies has led to a change in my body. How absolutely extraordinary. She could see this great thing in, in the form of the, of the turquoise. And um, I began to realize that the way in which I talk and the way in which I teach is actually connected with those energies of the butterfly. It's not just about butterflies. I know it's out of butterflies that I speak. And that was strange. Anyway, that's the throat chakra. And anybody who sings or speaks or just is musical has a blue, a very strongly blue um, throat chakra. And it can, if it's more intelligent and less um, gutsy, it tends to be a lighter and more sky sort of blue. And if it goes down into the feeling more, as it does in me, then it'll be more turquoise and nearer to the green. Then you get down from the throat chakra to the heart chakra. Now this is a very complicated because the whole of human evolution is really centered on the heart. So you might say that the heart of the temple of the human form is the actual heart organ and it's evolving at a colossal rate just now at the end of this century when these all these millennial changes are happening it's quite different from what it was even a century ago new things are happening in the heart the natural color for the heart is green but we've mucked about with our heart energies so destructively over the last say three to four thousand years that there's practically nobody who's got any green left in their hearts every time you get involved in the darker aspects of the earth and of the earth experience and there isn't a single one of us who is untouched by that we've all uh, don't be scared done dreadful things in some of our past lives there's no exception to that because doing dreadful things is part of the perspective experience that we need in order to be able to rise to the heights that we're all basically rising to <coughs> evil is evil but it's not as evil as it looks it's all part of the process it's all a learning process by which, through pain, we arrive at compassion. Evil, compassion, love, you might say. Evil, pain, compassion, love is the path. And 
if you look at past incarnations in which you have done dreadful deeds, they're almost always very small in the perspective of the whole thing that you've done. You may have been an absolute devil for, for one or two whole lifetimes, and yet there'll be 50 other incarnations around it in which you've built huge structures or temples of light in, a, in other contexts. But this was talking about the heart chakra. The heart chakra has lost all its green because of what Blake would have called songs of experience. You know, you know Blake's three categories, songs of innocence, little lamb who made thee, and tiger, tiger, burning bright, and all those child, child clairvoyances that he had, the songs of innocence. Then he goes to the songs of experience, where he talks about the shadow side, and how life, how you can, how you, everybody has to sink into the dark of, of earth experience. And then he talks about the third realm, which he calls the songs of imagination. Innocence, experience, imagination. Innocence is beautiful and divine, but it doesn't cut much gingerbread. <laughs> it doesn't get very far. Experience is necessary in order to mature innocence, and imagination is like innocence with experience interlarding it, so that you feel in really imaginative poetry and imaginative music that there is a kind of innocence about it, but it also has maturity. It also has, okay, um, imagination is streetwise innocence, put it that way. Something like that. Uh, difference between Mozart and uh, who? Debussy, say. Both lyrical. But Mozart it flows directly out from the divine, almost untouched, whereas Debussy is a sophisticated Frenchman, and yet it's still lyrical. That's the sort of thing I mean. I wouldn't have called Mozart imaginative, but Debussy, yes, or Ravel. So, um, the heart is the venue for the transfer from innocence through experience to imagination, and the innocent colour is green, and we've lost it. Okay, mankind's lost his innocence. That's a simple way of putting the fact that we no longer have green arch. Now, what do we have instead? Every time you do something dark, black and dark muddy brown appear in your heart chakra. There's a woman called Lilla Beck. Look out for her books. What is your colour, I think, is one name of one of them. You read that? Yes. Now, she talks a lot about the, the things that have happened to the colours in the heart chakra, and it's very interesting. Once you've got black or dark brown in your heart chakra, you never lose it. It's always there as a slightly reminder of what you've done in the past. And it's fine. It's f it is forgiven by being externalised as black or brown. It's a baseline upon which the rest of the heart energies are built in a certain way. Now, the, 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 the possibilities and the, the wonder, the glory, really, of the heart, heart's experience on top of that, it's like a very sophisticated painting, really, the, the vision of, of the heart energy. Um, for instance, if you've, if you've redeemed your dark side by a very gentle form of loving life, uh, often as a woman, but not always necessarily, you'll get a lot of rose pink in there. It comes in as an entirely new creative colour 
like like the pink of a um, of a wild rose, for instance. If you're if it's more sophisticated and more artistic, there'll be a lot of apricot orange, N not full orange, but a sort of creamy apricoty orange, magnolia white, all kinds of beautiful shades of cream, and apricot and magnolia and different pinks and a lot of magenta especially if you've taken a lot of responsibility magenta tends to come in um, as a feature of organizing ability every color you can imagine all interwoven on a basis of the right kinds of shadows and it's sometimes full deep black and, and different browns and so on and sometimes you can even tell Lillebeck says how long ago the dark was or because there are whole layers of petals in, in a chakra it's like a wheel which they can see going round and the more mature it is the more petals it has the simple innocent people tend to have very few petals say a basic number of six say or nine and then in between shadowy ones which are the result of adding your own activities to what is naturally there and, and the more alive and conscious you are the more the spinning movements are there in it. So that's the heart chakra. Then then comes an abyss, a threshold. Now we experience that threshold in our breathing and it's physically manifested as the diaphragm, which for one thing is in constant movement and so it's constantly conveying energy from the higher chakras down to the lower ones and back. So there's a, a dialogue taking place. But it's two different worlds the world above the diaphragm and the world below the diaphragm is two different worlds. Now, we know this in a perfectly simple way, don't we? I mean, we're conscious down as far as our solar plexus, not even very conscious there, but we can be very conscious in the solar plexus here, <coughs> which is just below the diaphragm, and conscious in the heart above it. But there's a, there's a tremendous um, difference of emphasis between what we experience through crown, ajna, throat, and heart as between solar plexus, sacral, and kundalini, or, or base chakra, the, the, the three lower ones. To some extent, the solar plexus intervenes between the two regions, but it usually belongs more to the lower than to the upper half. And between is this abyss, or threshold. Uh, it'll be important to remember this when, when I start to talk about how this manifests in the earth. I'm only talking about it in the human being at the moment. There's a strict analogy, as I'll explain. Then comes the solar plexus. This is naturally green um, and goes through, therefore, greenish-yellow, a kind of lime green down here, and then it gradually goes over into yellow. And the solar plexus is called the solar plexus, the sun plexus, because of this natural radiation of yellow that it has. It's, it, is, it belongs very much to the sun, much more to the sun than to the earth. And the consciousness that you have in it is a very natural, unevolved consciousness, but it's, it's quite pure. You can't do very much with it. It's just natural. Um, think of an example of how the solar plexus operates in consciousness. If, you've, um, if you're very much in love with somebody or have had a very close sexual relationship with somebody and, and they're away for the weekend or you, you don't see them for a bit, and suddenly perhaps they have a car accident. You know. You know the very minute that that happens. Now that is solar plexus consciousness. It operates in the realm of energies um, 
which comes about through the organism itself which is a sun organism basically it comes from the sun which is why, why, again why it's called solar plexus natural consciousness which you haven't worked for usually awareness acute feeling awareness operates at that level yellow feels like yellow doesn't it the sharpness of it then you go down into the actual sacral area and the sacral area is where it's not where the energy comes from but it's where the energy of life manifests um, it manifests in competence in pride in what the French call amour propre this sense of self and uh, uh, um, the sense that you're you, you're wise wise in an earthly sense that word streetwise again is very much connected with this sacral sacral area and the color of it is orange orange is the color of pride it's also the color of professional competence uh, lawyers doctors um, admi high administrators high executives have a lot of orange in their sacral area <coughs> it's also of course very much obviously the color of glamour particularly sexual glamour it's the color of wealth the color of uh, of illusion in an astral sense the mistakes people make about really what it is to be human are very much centered there in feeling it's an ill color at times there's a certain illness about it it's a misunderstanding of what being a full human being is on some levels and yet we can't do without it we have to, in order to incarnate in it we have to have this particular energy and it's not um, it's not the source of the energy it's the transformation of the energy uh, into a usable form on the earth and of course it's bipolar it's very much male female it's the it's the sexual level too it's also the kidney level it's the level of um, interchange between um, between the earth and the, the earth substances and the, and the substance of the body the exchange that goes on there it's the it's the region of digestion or most of the digestion is there orange and then we're down and that is a completely distinct chakra and it's a very important one in our time because what's happening is that there's now more and more communication going on between this orange sacral chakra and and the speech one the musical one we're beginning to um, create much more here and so there's a lot of dialogue going on between the old way of creating life and the new way there's a very profound mystery connected with that which Steiner I think was the first to express he said there's going to come a time and it's already prefigured in people's consciousness when new human beings are not created sexually they're actually created through speech the, the sex organs are going to change in their function and they'll be far more social the sexuality will be a way of relating universally humanly 
and it won't be so closely linked with procreation. In a couple of thousand, three thousand years' time, we will find we are thinking our kids out of here. Speaking and thinking them out. Creating consciously the forms in which children come. Which means, of course, that we'll have far more conscious contact with our children before birth, before they're born. We'll know what, what they need in environment, in physical form, in uh, the kind of uh, experiences that parents need or want to go through before the children come and so on. It'll be far more um, uh, conscious than, it, than, it, than we have any idea of. And at that time, the sacral area will entirely alter its function and bef become much more connected with the earth and much more connected with our general awareness of being human. So that's the orange level. Then down to the base one, the final one, the, the bottom one, which disappears into darkness in the same way as the violet disappears into the darkness, but at the other end of the scale, in the red. And that's the energy that the East calls Kundalini. It's the, the, the gut energy of being incarnated in a body. It's what links us with the earth energy. It's what surges up from below in our consciousness of earth energies. And if it's allowed free reign without our becoming conscious of what's happening, it's highly dangerous stuff, of course. Raising, um, occultists always are saying this, raising Kundalini prematurely is the most destructive thing you can possibly do. It just blows you apart you learn techniques of tapping that energy before you're mature enough to, to deal with it it blows you up it blows you apart it involves you in all kinds of things that you're that are no longer connected with your individual life pattern your life line your destiny in fact it takes you out of your destiny and makes you just a kind of mindless product of the total energy of the earth and mankind and a lot of beings, uh, uh, Hitler comes to my mind as an obvious case, but a lot of beings who develop huge power over other people and over destiny, over history, are people who have prematurely release, released their Kundalini forces through dark occult practices, which Hitler did. He was a, a magician of very great power, but he's, not, he's only one of many. Well, there they are. Those are the seven chakras, and those are their characteristics, and those are their colors, roughly. Now, here comes the big point, where we come back to the Earth Temple theme. And this is what Peter Dawkins really taught me for the first time, what he had perceived and remembered from other lives, is that the reason we have those sevenfold forms is that we are... we're fruits, or... Um, products, crop if you like, of the earth itself. We ourselves are the result of the earth um, being fruitful in that way. We are fruits of earth activities and the form that we, we are in, this, this form, this sevenfold structural form, it's only one way of looking at it because we've also got all the other uh, geometrical and uh, spatial uh, forms as well, which we could talk about another time. The, the reason we have them is that the Earth has them too. In order to understand just what the origin of that is, you have to go right back to the earlier incarnations of the planet. The very first incarnation of the planet, which is called Saturn, was pure heat energy. 
and even at that stage it was divided into regions like um, because you know, it's nonsense to say it looked like so and so because there was no looking done in those days there were no looking organs or seeing organs in any being but its form was rather like a mulberry it was like um, a sphere but it was divided up into sub-spheres which jostled against each other and there were twelve of them it was a five times twelve sort of structure and that five times twelve structure is still there in the earth that's why we have these tectonic plates and these huge areas of structure and energy which jostle each other over the whole of our present Earth history, moving apart and coming together. Uh, after Atlantis, the whole of the western part went one way and the eastern part another, but there have been continental drifts going on for the whole of the history of the present Earth. Well, that has a previous history in previous incarnations of the Earth. And originally there's a 12-fold warmth structure which gave rise to that. Um, now those heat energies evolved into air energies and ultimately into water energies and now into solid energies. And they were the, uh, if you like, the original earth temples. They were the, the, the basis of the... Um, the original division. It was like cell division. As a matter of fact, um, the, the original division in, in, into heat energies on old Saturn w was exact, is exactly mirrored in embryology now. If you look after the first cell division of a, of a fertilized ovum in any animal or plant and in humans too, it divides up into something which is called a morula. And the morula means a mulberry-shaped thing. There are, uh, there are originally only 12, sometimes set, I think there's a phase in which there are seven, and then there are 12 uh, such cells which form the first little um, nest of subdivisions before um, the three layers of ectoderm, mesoderm, endoderm form in, in the embryo. So it, that's a repetition of that old form. And each of those original cells has no doubt got chakras <laughs> it must do it must have that sevenfold form I I in it and in the earth now the the, the temple structures the, the areas of recognizable spiritual energy in, in the earth and across the earth's surface are all chakral in nature you can wander through the landscape and you can learn to find and learn to identify places where the energies are predominantly crown energies, where they're pre predominantly perceptive energies, where they're predominantly expressive energies, where they're predominantly affectional energies, where they're predominantly sensitive energies, where they're predominantly creative energies, and where they're predominantly pure energy. In a, in a kundalini sense and that's a more that's a more particular kind of definition of earth temples and those you can learn to find there are many ways of finding them at that point perhaps you almost begin to ask well what's the point what, what, what would be the value of that well one of the principal values of it is 
is, is the acquiring of some sort of form to our natural sense of bump of locality on the earth, of finding where we ourselves in our destiny path are supposed to be. Where are we supposed to live, for instance? What kinds of place in the world are we supposed to settle down and work in? What is the most fruitful way of traveling in the earth in order to acquire the experiences we need? And in that, that sense, these days, we have no natural bump of locality at all. We, the, in, in, the intellect simply won't provide us with in, information of that sort. Okay, we can get an airplane. If we've got enough money, we can go all over the earth. But if you travel a lot in, in, out of uh, external motivations like that, the whole thing becomes just meaningless and mainly repetitive, especially in our civilization. I mean, just picture, in England alone, if you're blindfolded and you were taken in a car or an airplane and dumped down in a city centre in most places in England, would you know which one you were in? All the supermarkets are exactly alike. You'd hardly know which part of England, the en it speaks nothing of the energies, of the natural energies of the place you're in. They're all the same. We've, we've ironed it out, we've flattened it out with the kind of consciousness we have. Now with this kind of temporal consciousness, you begin to, s you start to know where you are a bit. The, the energies on the Cheviots and down the Pennine chain are completely different from those I in this lush part of southern England, for instance. Now let's look at Western Europe from that point of view. Um, At the end of Atlantis, uh, when, when the third major flood happened, there were a large number of people who were extremely responsible for, for the release of all that enormous flooding energy that happened. It was the result of, of a war, really, between different kinds of human beings then who wanted to control the Atlantean civilization in different ways and they all got caught up in this destructive war situation and they were in, ch in charge of energies that make our nuclear energy look like child's toy and they, they could they could actually um, raise the energies of, of all the growing forces of plants for instance and direct them at each other they could cause plants to grow around each other and strangle each other they could um, they could cause tides to flow uh, and, and rivers to mount and, and tremendous storms and that kind of thing. That they could control etheric force, in other words, and, and direct it in a warlike way against each other. Well, gradually, out of the learning processes that happened then, a large number of people began to come to themselves and realize that it wasn't good enough and that there were higher motivations that, that human beings could relate themselves to, particularly relating to the sun gods who, who visited them from time to time. Now, some of those people came east. Some went west, some came east. And certainly the ones this side, the eastern side of the Atlantean, Atlantean continent, had schools of energy which made, a, which tried to limit the destructive force of the floods and push back the, the, the flood tides from w what is now Europe and Africa. And in pushing them back, they ensured 
that part of the Atlantean energy, which was a completely different energy from that which was to follow it, our European and, uh, and, and the American energy, that the, these were entirely different energies, what, for what followed Atlantis from what had gone before. Um, it, it ensured that a certain fringe of what is now Western Europe and Western Africa remained active without being flooded and retained its old Atlantean force. Not in full strength, but enough to ensure that certain powers that people had in Atlantean times were not entirely lost. If they hadn't done that, the present Indo-European civilization would have, to, would have to have started from a completely different point. It would have had almost, you could say, to start again as if mankind was here for the first time. But it was, it was because of those activities that, that a link remains between Atlantis and our present civilization. Only for that reason did Plato, for instance, who was the first who actually wrote about Atlantis, um, was he enabled clairvoyantly to see enough to describe it in terms that people could understand. Um, that was one result. But a much more important result was that what we call the Celtic fringe or the, the, um, the Western um, spiritual stream had a ground of energy on which to build which was related to, to the, the clairvoyance and consciousness of what had gone before it. And if you see where this, this happened, you see that it's Iceland, it's, it's Scandinavia, the western part of Scandinavia, it's the western half of Scotland, not the eastern half, um, Wales particularly, Ireland very, very conspicuously being further out into the ocean, as it were. Then you come down to Cornwall, which has again these characteristics, as it stopped. Um, then you come to Brittany. Then you come to Galicia, which is the sort of western, northwestern uh, peninsula of Spain. Now each of these, and then you come down uh, around the corner to the Rock of Gibraltar and along the Italy coast where it thins out and isn't so powerful and bits of North Africa bits of that um, western part of North Africa it all has a certain geological similarity granite is very common as a rock silica is very common as an element now all these elements in granite and silica <coughs> have a very special capacity for exchange between light and dark the glittering of, of, of siliceous and mica in, in granite rock allows a certain exchange between the physical matter and light to take place more actively there. Um, there's a different quality of sound, of listening. Breathing is quite different. You, you have far more interchange uh, when you breathe between, uh, between the outer con uh, nature realm and your own consciousness. In other words, we're talking about Celtic civilization, aren't we? We're talking about what can happen in a spiritual way in the consciousness of people uh, connected through heredity and through environment with what used to be called the Celtic fringe. It still is. You can still call it that. That's why you get all these legendary um, um, consciousnesses built up in Scandinavia, for instance, the Eddas and the, uh, the Norse myths. It's why you get the Welsh and Irish legends. 
Brittany has a similar relationship to that. Cornwall, full of pixies and, 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 and ghosts. Galicia in western Spain, uh, where the whole legend of Santiago de Compostela took place, where the pilgrimages in the Middle Ages took place into a new and lighter realm of consciousness. The whole thing formed a link between an older civilization and the present civilization in such a way that we could develop a Western, characteristic Western path of knowledge. Now down through all those areas, if you trace it, you can find chakra points. It's as if there's a Western European chakra-based temple. The crown characteristics of it are all up in the north. In England itself, in Britain itself, that there's, a, there's a sort of subdivision of this Western European temple which starts in northern Scotland and ends in the Gulf de Lyon, in the Mediterranean. And you can see where the chakra areas are right through it. The head of the crown chakra, the real ch crown chakra of the, of the northern part of our section of Britain, is in the Scottish Highlands. Actually, it's at Benmore Ascent, which is a, a mountain way above the Cairngorms uh, and back about 20 miles from the sea. Um, where immediately west of it, there's an area between Cape Roth and, and say, Ullapool, where uh, there, are, there are certain days where the, the sand and the, uh, the rock has remained almost completely untouched. It's a bit too cold for civilization to have penetrated there. It's absolutely amazing what the atmosphere of that coast is. And very few people go. Americans do. They go rushing up. And of course, since the nuclear thing at Dune Ray, there's a lot of traffic up there in the little lanes that go up there. But apart from that, it's deserted. And it's like an, a natural relationship to the crown chakra of, the, of Western Europe to, to go there. Come down a little further south, and you come into the... Um, Ajna region uh, of the temple and you get a peculiar quality of intelligence penetrating analytic intelligence but also a lot of intuitive intelligence Edinburgh that peculiar relationship of, 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 of Scotland particularly southern Scotland to, to the educational impulse of Britain little further south and the speaking the, uh, the actual speaking chakra of, of this temple York typical it's where the minster is it's where Christianity first became vocal in Britain they tried to build you know, you know they didn't originally intend York minster York they intended it to be at a little place which is now a tiny village called Lastingham in the North Yorkshire Moors Vikings came along and cut everybody's heads off and chopped them into bits they had to start again. And in the end they gave up and went a little further south into York and built the thing there. And it became really the, the most vocal uh, and expressive aspect of early Christianity there. A little further south still, and you come into the region of the... Uh, from here, in, in, uh, into the heart region. And that is really the characteristic of the whole of southern England. If you, if you explore the... Um, the spiritual foundations and cultural foundations of Britain they mainly tend to centre in southern England much to the indignation of the northern English and Scots 
But it is perfectly true that there is a natural basis for the gentler aspects of culture south of a line, say, through, um, through Oxford. It's, um, it infuriates Northerners when people say that. But they've got something different. Northern English are, uh, have, have a far more robust consciousness on certain levels than the Southern English, and they regard the Southern English as a bit soft. I've heard people from Bradford say, yeah, I know the flat, fat South. <laughs> um, it, they regard this as wet <laughs> down here. Um, but it's because of heart qualities. Um, that is why some people regard Glastonbury as the heart chakra of, of the world. I don't think it is, but that a lot of people say that that is so. There are certainly a lot of heart forces to be found in many centres, cultural centres in southern England. And then comes what I described as the abyss, the diaphragm. And the diaphragm of the Western European temple is the English Channel, or as the French will call it, La Manche. And that divides a heart energy from a solar plexus energy. And just think about the northern French in that context. How solar that energy is. The sharp intellect. A tendency not really to be much affected by heart considerations. But a scintillating intelligence. The quality of northern French poetry, for instance. It, it belongs to a very direct and very sharp perception, which is highly intellectual. But it's an intellectual which is more natural than evolved. It's not the intellect of a developed consciousness on spiritual path, for instance. Then you come down to southern France. And southern France, south of a line, say the River Loire, or a little further south, <laughs> it's the sexiest part of Europe, for one thing. It's full of a kind of passionate, poetical dynamism. All the Cathar poetry, the... the the, the troubadours were invented in the southern half of France. I mean, just think of that. The, the, the way in which the whole of spirituality was really expressed from, say, 1100 onwards in song and, and verse and, and, um, and in a, a tremendous um, clairvoyant connection with, with, with the poetry that comes out of the earth. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, after the re resurrection, went to southern France and lived out her life there and related herself in a, in a deeply spiritual way to the whole of what went on in the water and rock, particularly in the cave structures, where all the Magdalenian paintings were made in the cave structures in the Stone Age, for instance. An extraordinary coincidence that, it, that, that, cave, that that period of history became known as Magdalenian, when obviously none of them had the faintest idea who made Mary Magdalene was, but they still named it that because one of the caves they found the pictures in was named after her. All that passionate side of Christianity was developed there. The whole struggle between the heretics and the Inquisition took place there, all on a deeply passionate level. And then, down below that again, into the darkness of the flood because our kundalini energy, the basic energy upon which the whole of our life depends, is very unconscious. So it's rather natural that it be underwater. And the base chakra, the kundalini chakra, the dark red one, is under the Mediterranean Sea. So there you have the whole of the Western European temple laid out like a human being 
two and a half thousand miles long. Well, that's the, that's the main example of an earth temple that we can relate to. But, there are earth temples everywhere. That you might call a kind of archetype of the, of the earth temples that we ourselves can make contact with. But there are earth temples all over the place. When I first began to study these things, which is now about 15, 12 to 15 years ago, we were sent, literally, uh, <coughs> it was a, <coughs> a, kind, a piece of deep guidance, really, to a spot in central Wales. And there we found, almost as if it had been laid out for us as a kind of exercise book on these studies, a 15-mile-long, 15-kilometre-long line exactly north to south stretching from a place in the Black Mountains called Minavanvach through a village called Mervai to a town called Flandavari then up through a village called Frandirmuin and then up, up into the north, the central Welsh hills at um, Llynriannan which is a fairly recent reservoir but um, it's the confluence of the Tui River with the Doithia River. The Doithia is quite a small stream, but the Tui, which the English people usually call the Tawi, um, and therefore get it muddled with the one further west, which is the, which they call the Tor, but which is really called Tawi, the one that goes through Swansea, in other words, Pantam Dawi. But this one goes through Flandavery and is called the Tawi. And that river uh, really marks the track of a beautifully laid out temple where you can very, very distinctly identify each one of those chakra points. The crown is very, very hidden to the west of that Lynn Rhiannon, all among the Forestry Commission's fir trees, at a spot <coughs> which is so unrecognisable on the physical ground that it, it, it takes uh, an experienced level to find it. And I, I was lucky enough to go with somebody who had a combination of dousing ability with direct perception, husband and wife team. She could rem she could see it, and he could douse it. So between the two of them, from the outside and the inside, they came together and they pinpointed it right to a particular spot where a little stream went over a little waterfall. And as we stood there, I've only been there once, actually stood, no, twice, stood on the spot. <coughs> She became aware of an enormous guard. She said he was about 40 feet high. He was quite benevolent, but um, he was a sort of bronze colour, she said. He was a giant, really. He was completely bald, and he just stood there with his arms folded, like one foot one side and one the other, and just stood there. And he's, he was really saying to us as a group of human beings, because Obviously, lots of people pass over there and don't know anything about what it is, and they're quite harmless because they're not aware of what they're doing. But if people come with any sort of consciousness to a place like that, um, you do need to know what you're doing, and you need to take advice from your own intuitions. And he, uh, I was completely unaware of all this because I, I wasn't at all clairvoyant at that time. And um, he said to her, what have you brought these people here for? So she said, well, we were interested in the whole temple thing and, and we just found our way here. He said, well, that's fine, since you know what you're doing, 
but please don't bring in anybody else here because it's not ready yet it's much too dangerous for people to think consciously about the energies at a spot like this give it another hundred hundred and fifty years and it'll be fine but at the moment these energies here are very secret and they're dangerous to human beings I'm standing here with my arms folded he said but if I were to do this there could be energies released which would blow you off the planet so be careful what you do so we sort of we felt naughty children we, we weren't frightened because we knew that we were protected but um, you don't play around with energies like this and um, the energies that are there are perfectly safe and are needed for the evolution of mankind at this point but not the very high ones and not the very low ones the kundalini energies are equally dangerous if they're played about with without um, without knowing what you're doing but the crown ones particularly so because they they bring higher levels of existence into contact with our earth energies in a way that is very much connected with, earth, with human evolution and we are all evolving and some of us are ready for some experiences and some for others so one has to be cautious not cautious but but conscious if you're cautious and, and are just afraid of the energies then that of course is equally bad so that was the crown chakra of this Randir Muin temple as we call it the Ashna one this was interesting because when I was working with Peter in the in the gatekeeper trust in the early days he said you can always recognize an Ajna center in the landscape by the fact that there's a split in it why we said well first of all he said let's see if we can recognize the splits and there was a, a, a cliff just behind the original the original place we found was the speaking stone the actual throat chakra of the temple we found first but just above it was a, a high cliff and there was a great cleft through it which looked as if it had been formed by a lightning stroke and he said that in some cases he mentioned one or two others there's one near to Aberystwyth no Abergavenny called Skirid there's a mountain called Skirid near to the Sugarloaf Mountain at Abergavenny and that has a similar split just near to the top where you would expect the Ajna Center to be and it's due he said to the fact that in certain early period of human history the intelligence got divided from the feeling and it showed itself as a split in the structure both of the human being where you've got the floor of the skull as it were like a kind of barrier between this level of intelligence and the intelligence below and just as that is being healed now in human beings so it will ultimately be healed in the earth as well not necessarily by the rifts in the landscape being filled up but by the consciousness of human beings realizing what is happening and working on the energies there so that was the Ajna center there and it was on a cliff as I say with a great cleft through the middle of it then came the place which we first discovered in this temple which was a great big triangular stone must have been about 30 feet high and very steep which divided these two rivers from one another 
and the, the nature of these rivers was interesting because the Tomi itself coming down from the reservoir Loch Rhiannon um, was very masculine and, and violent and, and, uh, and straight whereas the other half the, um, you might call it the female half was a gentle curving sinuous um, river which joined the other one and, uh, and had obviously come through a much flatter valley and between the two was this rock and the interesting thing about it was purely geographical because it was at the point where the old county of Cardigan actually invaginated into Carmarthen <coughs> Carmarthen you know means the Welsh name for Carmarthen is Caerdarvin which means the camp of Merlin Merlin's name was Merlin Wist the wild Merlin and Caerdarvin was his camp and that was Carmarthenshire and Cardigan was something else I don't know who Diggan was but it was the camp of somebody else and <coughs> Peter began to perceive that this rock that we were standing on was Merlin's original speaking stone it was where he taught from and below it there was a pool and in that pool which was very deep and was really formed by the confluence of the two rivers there, was, there were buried crystal energies and we all began to be aware that, that we'd been led there to a great extent by Arthur himself led by Arthur, that's to say in our will powers into the realm of Merlin, Merlin that's to say in our thought powers so we'd been led on a journey by Arthur to experience something that really came from Merlin now that was the speaking stone so that was the throat chakra of that particular temple then you came down and you went over a, the, the river flowed absolutely dead south on the north-south line of the temple and then went up and over a hill which we could see and we could see two little tumuli and Peter said that in primitive times on those there'd been fires it was like a kind you had to go through this from the throat chakra down towards the heart chakra was like another sort of abyss in a way I've never quite discovered what the mystery of that was because normally you wouldn't have a barrier between the throat and the heart but there certainly was there and the road went right round the hill and came out the other side and came down to the village of Vandermoen and there there was a gem of a little mountain called hmm, something Vach they're all Var and Vach aren't they in Welsh and um, the big and the little and this was something minidvach it must have been something like that and that was the heart you could feel the gentle energies of it around the bottom of it there was a lane and nestling against the hill were two oak trees which had been carbon dated as being 3,000 years old that's to say one tree had grown on the top of another and on the top of another and that the base part of it was all completely converted into stone it was no longer even wood it was um, lignified and then gradually almost fossilized um, that was the heart chakra and by pure intuition somebody had established a home for um, mental children um, pe people like Down syndrome kids and brain damaged kids just across the stream from it absolute perfect place for for uh, care of people for, for purely heart for, with purely heart energies 
solar plexus was a great hunky mountain which ran across diagonally across the road a little further down and then came Flandovery town and then you got down into the lower chakras and the way place where the river went across and separated Flandovery from the lower part was like a kind of solar plexus in it oh wait a minute no there was another abyss there was a rift in which the w r river went through a gorge and that was like a solar plexus experience uh, I mean a diaphragm experience leading down to the solar plexus then came the solar plexus and then we went into the base chakras but we didn't we did find at a later point both the uh, sacral and the kundalini energies but uh, they weren't so distinctive but we, we found them alright but they were sleepy it's as if they hadn't woken for centuries um, now all these temples all these earth temples are capable of being woken <coughs> at the right time when there are genuine human reasons for doing that and when society begins to be organized with more consciousness of these energies coming from that nearer home if you come across organizations like the fountain groups for instance and like these groups that are investigating corn circles and are doing a lot of dousing and are picking up forms in the landscape those people some consciously and sometimes not really very consciously are all the time if they didn't know it discovering temples because there are temples everywhere this particular pattern of formation in landscape is pretty well universal not only is it there in the landscape having been created partly by the gods one might say and partly by human beings becoming aware the smaller the scale on which this happens the more it becomes in the control of perfectly ordinary people we're actually creating earth temples all the time if a certain kind of clairvoyant were to come into this room now after this talk after this activity of shared consciousness that we're engaged in they would find a chakral temple here it wouldn't be here tomorrow or it might be here tomorrow it wouldn't, here, wouldn't be here the day after the, the energies are not necessarily of a very permanent character when they're fresh and freshly created but they certainly exist as dousable forms anywhere where consciousness is raised there are particular level of consciousness is attained through speaking and listening as we're now doing this is this has been tried as an experiment many times by the fountain group Colin Bloy who heads the fountain group is particularly interested in it and usually manages to get himself to douse the room after he himself has given a, a lecture it's amazing the patterns that you find energy patterns which you could actually if you um, douse and then make a sort of plan where you see the energies change and so on you can get marvelous patterns which you can draw on a piece of paper and they're all little temples and that of course is what corn circles are there's a lot more to say about them but um, they are expressions in physical form of energy patterns coming into existence by the dialogue going on between the earth energies and the human beings concerned if you noticed how all this sort of thing going on in the newspapers about corn circles 
the patterns are becoming more and more complicated the more attention are paid to them by investigators two or three years ago they were perfectly simple round things then they began to acquire little uh, subsidiary ones around them and now they're immensely complicated they've gone way away from the circular and, and cross-like form into all kinds of flowerings you know, sort of dumbbell shapes with side bits with squares on all kinds of patterns like that because people are thinking about them more I've lost my thinking there and it's still so um, see that's linked isn't it in a subtle way with what I said earlier about the fact that in the future we shall create our babies consciously because we can already create etheric forms consciously and gradually through techniques like dancing we can begin to become aware of them we can not only create temple forms in the landscape around us I can hear you sort of somehow saying yes but what's the point again why do it what's the point of it well the area of communication between human beings is not an abstraction it's actually a concrete thing here we are looking at a couple of tables together in the Merlin and Arthur time the communication between the twelve-fold patterns of human beings actually created a table you know what it was called it was called the round table and it was an area of communication a venue of communication between patterns of human beings who met each with different energies and who communicated and who developed uh, the basis for uh, the next stage of consciousness of human beings um, and that round table was of course a temple wasn't it it was a place of meeting of consciousnesses it was a bit to go back to the beginning when I first started it was a bit extracted from the time-space unified field and established in the earth as an area of communication and consciousness between human beings so it was both tempus and temple it was at a particular time in a particular space with a particular level of raised consciousness in it it was created of course if you remember the that particular bit of the Arthurian legend it was created by the elemental beings one particular one who was partly human partly elemental called Nimue imprisoning Merlin or at least one aspect of Merlin's energies in a tree for a thousand years that's what the legend says and by uniting Merlin with the tree energies which are the energies of wood he enabled that particular being Merlin whose function that was to become himself a temple in the sense of being the round table which was the sphere of communication between the male and female halves of the twelve-fold pattern that Arthur was administrating the twelve knights and the twelve ladies you might say but on a higher level that was twelve female archangels and twelve male ones that's what stood above and incarnated itself into that Arthur and the Knights pattern at that time in history 
happens again and again the twelve disciples of, of Christ were such a pattern the table of the last supper was a temple in that sense whether it existed physically or not doesn't matter but it, but it certainly existed etherically as a form of communication at that time well that's enough isn't it or too much <laughs> so now you can all go and create temples you can create a temple in your back garden perfectly it's not easy but you can do it you can create a place of heightened consciousness anywhere what the druids used to do was to find a, a row of trees and cut down the middle ones and encourage the growth of the ones along the side and create a kind of building with trees and raise their consciousness in that translated into religious terms this becomes something called worship now I just I don't use the word worship very often I don't quite know what it means I think it means the heightening of the experience of wonder the realization that something you can create on the earth's surface can be a doorway through into another region another level and that perhaps is, is worship it's devotion it's got a very devotional side to it certainly a lot of it is spoiled if one is too arrogant and too proud too proud of the achievements of mankind and then one gets clobbered by the gods worship yes a temple is a place where worship can come into being but in our day with, it, with everybody so sophisticated worship isn't very chic <laughs> perhaps it needs to become more acceptable again